Welcome to Playback, a Variety podcast. I'm your host, Variety Awards editor Chris Tapley. On today's show, we talk about the SAG Awards, where Denzel Washington and Hidden Figures came away with surprise wins. A little bit later, I'll be talking to Moonlight writer and director Barry Jenkins. So stick around. All right, everyone, here we are, and it's post Screen Actors Guild Awards. Hold on, I'm just finishing an email. You have the iPad. Oh, jeez. <laughs> it's very important, I promise you. Sorry, on your time. Yes. Because yes. there's nothing ready. more interesting than listening <laughs> to a podcast of somebody sending an email. Uh, you can make it work. Yeah, SAG Awards. So, uh, big surprise to me was less Denzel Washington than Hidden Figures. I know you had been mentioning Hidden Figures, and it and is the, an ensemble that's picked up awards, yes. but I just it beat some heavy hitters. The only reason I didn't ultimately pick Hidden Figures as the ensemble winner was because I had heard they didn't send screeners. Yeah. They only sent digital, and I was like, well, Moonlight's been out for a while. They sent screeners. I went with Moonlight, but, uh, I mean, everyone has seen Hidden Figures, mm-hmm. and it's got everyone in it. I mean, you've got Jim Parsons from The Big Bang Theory. You've got Kevin Costner, you know, aside Kirsten from Dunst. Kirsten Tons. It's like it. The, every somebody that movie has everybody's favorite actor in it somewhere. That's true. Yeah. So not a surprise to me. Also not a surprise considering that they really kind of spread the wealth. You know, someone from yeah. Moonlight won. Two people from Fences. Yeah. Um, I guess the only thing that really went home empty was Manchester, Manchester by the Sea, yeah. which had more nominations than anyone. I can't remember how often that's happened where a movie nominated for four mm-hmm. has gone home without any award but maybe it's happened frequently I don't know that was surprising uh, but then at the same time you're talking about like 150,000 people yep so a big broad quote unquote populist performance like what Denzel gives which I think is you know right up there with Casey's I'm not sure knocking it at all well you Makes and I have always that thought that Denzel was, could win this yeah I mean I, from the beginning I, yeah. I thought he was going to just because and I'm talking Oscar now because Casey gives such an internal performance mm-hmm. and that can be harder to get everyone to say, yeah, that's the best performance. But then Casey dominated to the extent that he did. And I he know we, we all say critics are not Oscar voters or SAG voters. But when something like that happens, it's like, wow. It's strange to me, though, that even now people are still saying Denzel isn't the front runner. You know, I mean, Casey could still win. Don't get me wrong. I think Ryan Gosling could still win. Right. But, I mean, we have to acknowledge that Denzel is the front runner with SAG because – If all- you're going to call something a front runner based on you know the kinds of people who are voting, then sure. But that's the last award he, he's going to be able to win before Right. He's Oscars. not up for the BAFTA, which is he's very strange. He's not nominated for BAFTA. BAFTA awards happen the day before the Oscar uh, ballots go out. If Casey doesn't win BAFTA, yeah, that's a bad sign for him. But I think sign. he's going to win BAFTA. Yeah. Although, again, I'm telling you, I'm keep an eye on Ryan Gosling. Cer- certainly. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, uh, Emma Stone obviously won. Yes, that was. I think it was a very tight race between her and Natalie Portman because a lot of SAG actors really loved Natalie's performance. Mm. But yeah, I think I think Emma has this sewn up at this point. Yeah, and in lieu of a an ensemble nomination for the film. Yes. Uh, which. Again, I think people could put too much on. I don't think it's mm-hmm. a huge I don't know deal. if people really vote that way. Like, people will say things like, you know, Denzel won because he'd never won a SAG award before. And I was like, I, I, most people vote for the person they want to vote for. And they don't, mm-hmm. like, parse out things. I always think of Birdman. Like, everybody said, well, it won't win. Sc- they'll give screenplay to Boyhood or they'll give director to Boyhood. Right, right. Like, no, Birdman won picture they screenplay director. They start checking off movies. Yeah. They're just like, check, 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 which is why Ryan is a possibility. Yeah. Which is why, you know... 
I don't quite get the urge to assume La La Land is not going to win screenplay, which we've talked about. That's ridiculous. I, I mean, of course it like, is. Well, why would it not? Yeah. Um, it could win all top five. I guess the first movie to do that since Silence of the Lambs. Right. There's yeah. only three that have done it. Uh, it Happened One Night. And what's the other one? Cuckoo's Nest. Oh, Cuckoo's Nest, of course. It's only three. Yeah. It's kind of one of those Oscar stats that every, all the Oscar hounds know. I feel like, like we're due. going to happen again? It could happen. Yeah. Well, we were due for a, a record-tying nomination slate, which we got out of the 14 nominations. True. And we could be due for a record-tying win slate. I mean, I still think that that's a movie that can win 11 Oscars. Because it doesn't have competition throughout these fields. I mm-hmm. mean, who were... Th- I don't see them picking, like, Allied for costumes or Fantastic Beasts for production design or something. Like, maybe a rival can grab something like production design, but I don't think so. Like, I just think, especially with the expressionistic elements at the end of this film, yeah. La La Land, and the way the sets are put together, and I just see them checking it off pretty much down the line. And then maybe the two songs can... Uh, cancel each other out or something yeah but even i don't think that's happening yeah i think it's winning song too you think it's winning sound editing that i don't know <laughs> i mean I, I don't know do musicals usually win in that category they never get nominated that's, so it's like we're yeah. in uncharted territory so who knows <laughs> well uh at the sag awards mahershala ali just mahershala right? we need like a a, a a theme whenever we say mahershala ali's <laughs> name to just oh come totally. in I, right before he won, I was like, if he wins, watch out for this speech. Yep. And that speech brought the house down uh, in his way. I mean, he's such a quiet, like, just soulful guy. Mm-hmm. I mean, soulful is a great word. Yeah. He's just humble and kind yeah. and gracious. Yeah. yeah. And looked really good and in a white spoke, suit. <laughs> he does. And he spoke directly to something without really bringing it up. Yeah. You know, I mean, I, I just, it was a very political night. And uh, there were there were explosions regarding that, you know, like from... Uh, Julie Louis Dreyfus, or you know, more pointed from the Orange is the, is the New Black cast, and then Mahershala gave a, a, a more personalized mm-hmm. kind of addressing of that situation, which I thought was very interesting. It was very um, people were very active on the red carpet. Oh, and, really? And I didn't see any things. of that actually. Well, yeah. Um, I mean, I don't think everything everything I did on the red carpet got put online, but uh, enough of it for you to Just sort chatting. of get a sense yeah. of it. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, yeah, people people do not hold back. You know, Brian Cranston was very diplomatic, and he <laughs> translated over to his speech where he was like, yeah. you know, I'm, I'm really – he didn't say he was rooting for Trump, but he's like, you know, I want this to work sure. because we're screwed otherwise. I, mean, I don't think anyone wishes for the failure that he's <laughs> charging towards. <laughs> charging but, uh, towards. I think, uh, yeah. And also, Cranston had a lot to say about Trump last year too, when he was making the rounds with Trumbo. Yeah, like he he had a lot. Of course, people were asking him about it a lot, and uh, you know he probably got tired of talking about it. So now he's just yeah, he sees that question coming <laughs> and is like, "I told you that um, I finally got to meet John Turturro on the red carpet, oh, nice. and he was having none of my nonsense. Oh, uh, <laughs> really? No, he was he was very nice, but you know he's a serious actor. He probably isn't prone to sound bites. Yeah, and. Uh, you know, I was I was you know a little jokey, and you know how you get on the red carpet. It's a very different type of interview than I'm sure he's used to. And right. he was just very he was funny because he was so serious. <laughs> you know, and I'd like try to talk to him about a foot eczema, and he'd be like, "Well, it's a very serious problem." And I was like, "I mean, maybe he was jo- he could have been joking. He's a brilliant yeah, he's comic dry. mind, so very dry." But um, <laughs> that was a surprising category because but uh, John Turturro and Riz Ahmed nominated yeah. against each other might have canceled each other out. Sterling K. Brown nominated against um, Courtney, B. Vance. Courtney B. Vance. Yeah, might cancel each other out, and people love Brian Cranston. John, so. Is that one John Lithgow won? No, that's the one Cranston won. That's the one Cranston yeah. won. Oh, yeah, yeah, for all the way. 
Yeah. The Crown people are really fun to talk to about what they think of American politics. I bet. Yes, I stopped Matt Smith and Claire Foy, and I was like, "So how do how are we coming off to you guys over there?" And they, <laughs> you got to see their faces. I think it's I think it's up on Variety because they're like, "Not good guys." <laughs> well, look, they certainly had their moment yeah. a few months ago with Brexit. So uh, yeah, exactly. You know, what can you say Guy Lodge on our staff was here over the weekend. We we caught up and. Uh, we were talking about that. Every he said that over there, it's more like it's it's less like people are like, oh God, what's wrong with the Americans than what's wrong with the world. I mean, yeah, we see it about to happen with France too. I mean, it's yeah. I should specify that Matt and Claire were not saying America doesn't look good. They were just saying you know just the Trump royal is we, not if you will. the royal <laughs> we, so to speak. Uh, PGA. Obviously, big La La shocker. Okay, there. tell me the truth. Did you pre-write your story about La La Land winning hours before it was announced? I had it ready to go. <laughs> I had it ready to go. I did. I mean, because come on. And, and what? He's got to win the DGA, right? Like I think so, unless it's Barry Jenkins. At the end of that nine-hour night, yeah. I'm sure he will win. And <laughs> can I just use this opportunity to reiterate something I have to say every year, which is that ensemble does not equal picture. Yes. And yes, Hidden Figures won ensemble. I mean, hey, it could win Best Picture. I'm not ruling anything out. But don't think that because it won SAG Ensemble. What it did was provide an opportunity that Taraji nailed. Exactly. And now I could see it, you know, just like with the Golden Globes effect, like gathering some steam from voters saying, I think I want to. I wish Oscar voting was still open and then maybe Taraji could have gotten a nomination. Oh, yeah, totally. The way Meryl's Globe speech really sealed the deal for her. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And also, you know, one of my favorite SAG wins is a birdcage. Oh, that's right. Yeah. So to your point, not a best picture contender. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, and so that's this weekend. DGAs are this weekend, and uh, ASC, the cinematographers, Santa Barbara Film Festival is gearing up, and they bring all the nominees in to have tributes and whatnot. So that'll be happening. Did you go to the editing awards? I did not go to the Ace Awards. Um, Arrival won there. Yes, which you have said. You know, you think has I a think chance. It's, I think yeah. yeah, just the structure. You know, I mean, it's the editing is on display, so uh, I could see that happening. But again. It'd have to be La La Land. It has to be yeah. La La Land. <laughs> and it's right down the line on that movie. So uh, and the backlash is naturally on schedule with La La Land. Sure. Here it is, you know, uh, the the jazz, the, the dubious angles regarding how it handles jazz has been have been flying around. And I'm just like, what is so threatening about this movie? Uh, how can I, you know, if it's not your thing, that's fine. But people who, like, have decided they hate this movie, I'm like, how can you hate Something that is about joy, you know. <laughs> I, we're at this. We've reached what it is. I think is, is we've reached this spot where, in a year of such diversity and inclusion represented in the nominations, that a movie like La La Land winning, which is granted about white people with champagne problems, uh, somehow flies in the face of that. And I don't know. I have a hard time. Wait, isn't Emma Stone half Hawaiian? Oh, no, that was a different movie. Sorry. <laughs> oh, man, deep cut. <laughs> <laughs> hey, she made fun of it herself on Saturday Night Live. You've got to give her credit for that. Speaking of, did you see the Saturday Night Live sketch? Was it this weekend or last weekend? Which with one? Aziz Ansari? I think we might have already talked we about We did this. talk about that, yeah, about the sorry. La La Land thing. Yeah, yeah. which was a, a very affectionate yeah, parody. Yeah, But that that is where I think this backlash is coming from. Like, it is a travesty if a movie like Moonlight doesn't win or if a movie like Hidden Figures, which is about, you know, 
dispelling our divisions and for the for a common good. Granted, La La Land, La La Land has always been. I'm totally previewing my column next week. <laughs> La La Land has always been this effervescent thing. It's mm-hmm. not important capital I like in that way. Um, and you know, someone said something like, "If it wins, it's like." While the world burned, Hollywood was singing and dancing. Oh, come on. That often happens where you turn to like a bit of escapism in, you know, unsure times. But like, I don't know. I just hate it. Every year something has to be compounded Mm -hmm. like this. And I just think it's people caring about the Oscars too much. Well, it's also interesting. People bring their own baggage to it. I don't know if, if we're allowed to get into spoilers here, but the movie's been out for a while. But so many people I talk to, when you ask them about the ending, they read so much into certain things. Like who she ends up with, right? Like they have a whole backstory. I, can, we, can I just say? Yeah. I mean, if anyone hasn't seen La La Land, first of all, I'm shocked you're listening to this. Yeah. Um, totally. Secondly, you know, she winds up with Tom Everett Scott, and there are some people who are like, she's trapped in a loveless marriage, and you can see she's looking to get out, and he's a bad guy. And I'm like, you don't cast Tom Everett Scott in a yeah. <laughs> quick role like that to make people think he's a bad guy. Like this is, you know, this is these are people who you, I learned long ago that. Because a relationship doesn't work out doesn't mean it's a failure. You know? Totally. I've, I've felt from the beginning. I asked, yeah. I asked Damien and Emma this question at Telluride. Mm-hmm. I was like, I think some people see this as a, uh, as a downer. And, and my view is these people came into each other's lives yes. exactly when they needed to, got each other to that next mm-hmm. step in their life, and exited stage left. It's melancholy, but it's not sad. It's beautiful yeah. in that way. I mean, it's like, I don't know. And yeah, and I I feel like she looks like she's very happy in her marriage with yeah. her child, and we don't know what's going on. What's with going on at Ryan's the end is they are very happy for each other. Exactly, that's what's happening. And like it, it is, it is shocking to me how some people are just like they've created this whole other scenario where she's sold out for stardom, and now she's trapped in a loveless marriage. And I'm like, please go to therapy. <laughs> to your point about baggage, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> they're bringing something into that. Well, this week we've got Barry Jenkins, wonderful Barry Jenkins. I have uh, not talked to this man all year. Really, not even in passing on Twitter. You've talked to him on Twitter. <laughs> yeah, that's it. And, uh, you know, partly by design because I just – I wanted the right moment and yeah. it feels like the right moment. He's so wonderful. Uh, I'll tell you a funny thing that happened on the red carpet. Um, I met Jaden and Alex, the two young boys who play um, Kevin and Chiron in mm-hmm. the first part of Moonlight. And I asked Alex Hibbert, I was like, so, you know, based on this movie, you're going to grow up to look like Trevante Rhodes. How do you feel about that? And he said, that's great, man, because I'm getting all the girls. <laughs> totally. <laughs> He's right. Hit the gym. Here's a funny story about Trevante, actually, at the Independent Spirit Brunch. Uh, I went to the bathroom and he was washing his hands. And I was like, hey, man, great work in the movie. He's like, thanks, man. And he goes out. He's, as he's leaving, I go, Predator. He goes, Predator. You're going to see, baby, Shane Black. <laughs> I was like, yes. So, Can I uh, follow that up with one more Trevante story? Do it. Right after that, he came to the BAFTA Tea Party. Mm-hmm. And I think a, our column had come out that week where we had said, like, people you should consider who haven't, you know, been in the Oscar conversation. And I had, you know, prefaced it by saying, of course, Mahershala Ali is going to win, but you mm-hmm. should not overlook Trevante Rhodes. So I saw him, and I was going to introduce myself to him. And he walks up to me and says, I know who you are. And I, like, completely lost the ability to speak. <laughs> I was like, you know who I am, and you're amazing, and da, 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 da. He's cool. He's the best. The whole, this whole crew is cool. Yeah. So, uh, anyway, 
have a really good chat with Barry, so uh, stick Amazing. around right after this. At some point, you gotta decide for yourself who you're gonna be. Can't let nobody make that decision for you. Tell him why the other boys kick his ass all the time. What's wrong? I'm good. I'm not. I'm saying good. And you ain't it. Remember the last time I saw you? You're my only. I'm your only. No, 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 no. You won't listen. To who, Ma? Huh? To you? Man. I ain't seen you in like a decade. It's not what I expected. What did you expect? Welcome back, everyone. I'm here with the writer-director of Moonlight, Barry Jenkins. Barry, thanks for doing the show, man. Thanks for having me. As I was saying beforehand, I've kind of kept my distance a bit this year out of reverence because uh you guys have been hit with a lot of press on this movie like it's it's been fantastic to see but i just didn't want to get lost in the clutter yeah yeah it's been uh <laughs> it's been a lot you know which which is great you know the, i think there's there's no way the voice of this film uh, would have carried as far um as it did without you know critics and, and the press and things like that um but it's interesting though when when uh the spirit award nominations came out when any nominations come out i always realize i'm like the only director who's on twitter um, so, so it does take an effort to maintain a distance because you're pretty active on Twitter. I guess we both yeah. are. Well, no, we, we've come together over our shared love of Deepwater Horizon mm-hmm, mm-hmm. On, on Twitter we've talked about. Fantastic film. And uh, now we finally can talk about Moonlight. We're sitting across from each other for the first time this year. So, again, thank you for coming up. Right. Um, I want to start by talking about the Telluride experience mm-hmm. because it's uh, obviously very special to you. And I'm sure you've talked about this a lot this year. But, uh, you know, you've... I've been going for seven or eight years. I know your face very well. You're always up there presenting the films, and you've been programming there for a a number of years. So this year must have been incredibly special to premiere the movie there. So tell me about that experience. Yeah, it was kind of like an out-of-body experience. You know, until we actually got there, it didn't seem like, um, like it was true. You know, I've been there since 2002. You know, it's a long time uh, to go, and you kind of get set. And what the festival feels like, what the festival is going to be like, and and this year was was quite different because, as you said, I had uh, a piece of work, um, and, and I think to to introduce the movie to the world um, in such a safe space. To be brutally honest, you know, I think there were so many people there who were rooting for uh, the film, you know, just people who I've worked with, um, that it was um, it was it was undoubtedly the best way um, to do it. And it, I think it kind of, kind of teed everything up for, for the rest of the year. Yeah, definitely. I saw it at the second screening, uh, the afternoon after the premiere. 
At the Galaxy, yeah, the yeah. Galaxy. That, that was my favorite screening of it in Telluride. Well, I have to be honest with you. Peter Sellers set you up to fail. I know. <laughs> I know. I know. Peter I Sellers, know. the uh, theater director, he gave the most glowing uh, just preview of this film just right before setting it up, and, and I was mortified. I was like, this movie is not going to live up to what this guy just said. And it did. <laughs> Let me lay that out there immediately. It did. But, man, I was worried, I have to say. Mm-hmm. But it was it was it's a staggering piece of work from you, and I just want to start by buttering you up by saying yes that it delivered on everything he said, and uh, that caught me by surprise. It was just such a breathless. Yeah, yeah, it was. You know, Were you worried uh, after that. It's like oh, uh, man. I, I, I was. You know, because uh, you know, it's um, it's a very intimate piece. It's a very uh, very small piece in a, in a certain mm-hmm. way. Um, but I think uh, what happens is the smallness of it, the, the specificity of it, kind of takes you by surprise, and and. And being small, and by which I should say specific, it becomes this this larger thing for people, I believe. And I like for it to be like a sneak attack. You know, mm-hmm. my favorite viewer is someone who walks in knowing nothing. So if someone tells you before you sit down to watch a movie, <laughs> this movie is going to move mountains, you know, <laughs> yeah. you're like, no, it's not. You know, you already go into it believing that it's not. But, um, but you know, people, uh, you know, when the lights go down, they see the work uh, for what it is. And so... Yeah, when 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 he said it, I was standing off to the. I think I came right on, and I, and I said immediately, "Now I want you to push all those Dial things <laughs> like 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 out of sight, out of mind." Uh, but even Peter, you know, uh, it came from uh, a place of love. I think he had been moved by the movie as well. So um, yeah, definitely. So I, I, I was fine with it, but yeah, I had the same thought in my head. <laughs> the fact that the film was born there as well is interesting. With the fact, you know, this has been written about that you. Uh, Spoke with the the Plan B folks, Jeremy Kleiner and Dee Dee Gardner, after a screening of Twelve Years a Slave. Brad mm-hmm. Pitt got the ball rolling. Uh, it's interesting that it's an environment like that, where movies like that can start percolating, because of the atmosphere there. I think it's such a casual atmosphere mm-hmm. for filmmakers too. Uh, and and is that something that you've kind of found in your time as a filmmaker? programming there for years seeing that it's it's a space where that can happen yeah i think absolutely i think um it's not to say that that everyone there is ultra friendly but i think the environment kind of engenders uh these interactions these actual like personal person to person interactions you know for example i've introduced i think two of alexander's movies um at telluride and so when when moonlight came out he went to the arc light and he saw Mm -hmm. it with an audience and then he got my email and he wrote me an email you know he's like hey I remember you as the guy <laughs> who introduced these films you know and he had very very uh, just amazing things to say so I think it is um, an environment where that's possible and where it happens quite often um, and yet it's never I mean for me at least it never feels a uh, course like I didn't come from from Europe with the script going oh my god I'm gonna I gotta meet plan B and tell them about Moonlight I learned I was going to introduce that film eight hours mm-hmm. uh, before because nobody knew that it was going to be right. there except for the heads of the festival. Um, but then, yeah, because you're in uh, this place, and you know, I don't want to go on and on about the beauty of Telluride, but I think these conversations they just happen. Um, and you're right. Three years later, we premiered uh, the movie um, at the same festival, which is shocking. Yeah. And then that, I remember standing in line after that screening, and you guys came out after the Q and A, and the whole crowd just burst into applause. I mean, now, now that is something <laughs> that that I have to I, I have to honestly say, uh, and this is not uh, just me trying to be modest, but I've never seen that happen at that festival ever, ever. I've Absolutely. never seen that happen. I just haven't seen that before. Yeah. And it, that was that was I think probably as far as Telluride goes, the moment where I realized 
wow, something different is happening. Mm-hmm. By which I mean something different than my expectations. Yeah. I thought the film would be, you know, relatively well 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 received there. Um, but I'm inside the movie, and, mm-hmm. and I, I had no context of what it would mean to people um, outside. And you're right, when we came out of the galaxy, um, I think it was the patrons line. And I was yeah. like, this is, yeah, it was, <laughs> yeah, it was amazing. Uh, tell me about just, you know, in your years of programming shorts there, mm-hmm. uh, you know, three of the shorts that are not nominated this year for an Oscar, <clears throat> you programmed there this year. Uh, just out of curiosity, I think filmmakers maybe listen to this. Uh, you are a person who has seen your share of short films, I'm mm-hmm. sure. It seems like it might be a kind of a saturated uh, market, for lack of a better word. Uh, what does it take to stand out when you're a short when you're a filmmaker making a short film, trying to pop like that? Yeah, I think it's all about uh, personal vision, uh, voice, especially at the short at the short shorter lengths. You know, I mm-hmm. think. Um, you really have to stand out. I, I often say it's probably more difficult to make an amazing short film than it is to make um, an amazing feature uh, because everything kind of has to be hitting. You know, I tell you right, we don't program very many shorts, you know. I think we maybe screen, I don't know, 15 to 16 shorts total, you know, over the, over, you know across the whole uh, program. Whereas some place like, like Sundance, you know, they can show like 150 shorts, you mm-hmm. know. Um, uh, and, and it's all amazing work. So for us, it's about... Uh, the personal voice, you know, things have got to stand out. You know, last year there was a film called Everything uh, Will Be Okay, which was nominated in uh, the short uh, short narrative. Amazing film, oh, amazing film. Um, it didn't win the Oscar, but amazing mm-hmm. film. It's like forty minutes, you know, which is mm-hmm. really difficult to program for a short film. But the voice of it uh, was just so strong and so powerful. Um, and, and I think with a short film. Usually it's, it's got to be like personal vision is the very first thing um, I look for. And I think the three films this year that you noted are uh, nominated in short doc. They're all very voice-heavy films, mm-hmm. especially 4.1 Miles, um, yeah. which is probably uh, my favorite of all the shorts that I programmed this year. Yeah, definitely check that out, everyone, if you get a chance. Uh, I'm going to get into Moonlight in just a second. I want to go back in time a bit uh, when you were uh, assisting for Darnell Martin. Mm, mm-hmm. uh, Darnell directed Cadillac Records. Uh, female director, I should point out, just because the name might throw you off. I have people all the time like, <laughs> oh, you work for Darnell. I love him. He's amazing. <laughs> and I'm like, no, you don't know Darnell. <laughs> well, I want to know what you learned from Darnell. You know, uh, so I was Darnell's assistant from the earliest pre-production all the way through post-production. And uh, her biggest thing was about, was about work and dedication to the craft. Um, and working with actors, I should say, you know, uh, Darnell had me involved in everything. I would be at all the rehearsals. You know, she liked to get to set like two hours before call time and she would walk the set by herself. And I was there for all those things. Um, it was really about taking responsibility um, for the craft of the piece um, and really trying to build a genuine relationship with the actors. You know, those were the two two biggest things. You know, uh, she was amazing. And I learned a lot in that year and a half assisting her. Mm-hmm. And you came out of that. You, you did some. Sh- uh, you, you made medicine for melancholy, mm-hmm. and then you worked in the short film space some more. Yeah. And we were talking just before. There's a film you made called Remigration that I just saw yesterday. Everybody check this out. It's on YouTube. It's something you made with PBS and uh, ITVS, where they were asking filmmakers to kind of envision an attainable future, like what's something that could happen. And you put into it your ideas of gentrification, and it's essentially this vision of a city where the the blue-collar working classes left because they can't afford to live there anymore. Now they're kind of being enticed to come back because 
who's going to work, basically, is what it boils down to. Uh, great film, and I just want to pitch to you that's something you've heard before, <laughs> apparently. That's a feature, man. That's a feature <laughs> film. I, I mean, maybe. You know, you know the, th- the thing about that was, you know, a lot of the shorts I did between uh, Medicine and Moonlight, they weren't because I had an idea for a short film. It was like an opportunity kind of presented itself. Just like with ITVS, they hit me up. And they had sort of like uh, like a thesis statement, which was it had to be about the not-too-distant future, and it had to be uh, hopeful or uplifting. Mm-hmm. Um, and so within, the, within that box, I kind of came up with the concept for remigration, which to me was uh, an extension or an extrapolation of what the characters were dealing with in Medicine for Melancholy. Um, I'm glad you mentioned it because nobody ever talks uh, about that short. You know, I got to work with uh, Rick Yoon, Russell Hornsby, Paola Mendoza. You know, was, uh, you know, in 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 medicine, you know, Wyatt and Tracy didn't have a lot of acting acting experience, where these guys were all uh, seasoned, trained actors. Mm-hmm. And it was, uh, you know, it was a, a a beautiful reminder of what's possible when, you know, you take these things in the world um, that you are concerned concerned about, and you try to blend them. Um, with the art, um, so I'm glad that you brought that up because I'm, you know, I was really happy the way that turned out. Before this film, actually, that was the last time James and I worked together. Oh yeah, really? It's uh, yeah. I mean, it's just the way it tackles socio-political ideas, and you know, I'm kind of sort of reminded of something like her Spike Jones film, mm-hmm. which is like an attainable future as well. And I don't know. I'm just saying, I'm not your agent, but uh, <laughs> I'd watch a feature of that. <laughs> Noted. <laughs> let's, let's talk about Moonlight. Uh, first of all, Terrell McCraney's piece, uh, thank you uh, for hooking me up with that. It's a really elegant uh, piece, and uh, what's immediately striking, first of all, the language, both dialogue and, and his uh, action, is is it's really striking, and I feel like it should be published. Do you think there's a possibility that it'll be published? Uh, that's, that's up to Terrell. You yeah. know, I think he wrote it when he was a very young man. I think he'd maybe want to take it and make some adjustments um but uh that's up to terrell i I, I can't say yeah i mean i can understand that it definitely captures him in a different voice than than what he's grown into exactly but i think that's what's so vital about it Mm -hmm. and i think that the fact that it it, it brought moonlight to life is is very noteworthy so terrell if you're listening (laughs) i think other people would love to read that (laughs) but uh the most notable change you made when you were adapting this story was uh structurally obviously the the terrell piece was 45 pages but it blended the stories of little chiron and black so you kept kind of going back and forth and you took those and made them you you went linear and you kind of told each story completely before moving on to the next one what was your thought there why did you think that was important you know i kind of when i first read it i tried to read it as an audience member you know it's someone sitting in the cinema you know watching the story unfold um and i felt like it was too intellectual to really follow the journey of you know the boy into the teen into the man I mean, I thought whatever the piece was saying about the world uh, was going to be uh, best digested by the audience, you know, over the course of a linear journey Mm -hmm. um, with the character rather than seeing time fold back back on itself. Um, And and also, too, you know, I I right away thought of the concept of of seeing the sky, you know, as different people, you know, literally how the world has manifested himself into, has forced to manifest himself into a different uh, uh, person. And I thought that if you could really spend time with one version and then jump and spend time with the next version you, you'll you see more of the change you know mm-hmm. you, you'll get more of the read of how society has, has affected this person um, and so yeah it just it, and, and it was honestly the breakthrough that, that where I was like oh okay now I can take on, uh, take take authorship of this piece yeah you know something else it really does is uh, 
uh, Mahershala Ali's character, it the way you've structured it, when he's no longer there after the first piece of the triptych, it, it makes you miss him exactly. so much more. And, and, and you see how the presence of the sort of father figure, the sort of role model in a certain way, you know, if it's not constantly readjusting mm-hmm. the way it's being sort of ingested by our main character, it kind of starts to go off the rails a bit. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, I want to talk about your DP, James Laxton, we were mentioning earlier. Uh, and, and First of all, like going back to film school, like what interested you guys photographically, uh, you know, whether photographs or certain cinematographers? Like, mm-hmm. because certainly with Mel- Medicine for Melancholia, which was more overt in its kind of visual stylings, and then definitely here too, you have a, you have a distinctive visual signature going on. So I'm just curious what inspired you guys at the beginning. Yeah, we were really big into uh, Christopher Doyle. And, uh, and I'd say Darius Kanji. Uh, those were like the two biggest ones uh, for us. And Christopher Doyle, it was just because, you know, as I've said about my approach to directing, you know, I just liked the idea that there was more than one way to tell a story. Mm-hmm. There was more than one way to photograph an image. Um, and I just loved the way that that collaboration between Wong Kar Wai and Christopher Doyle, the way it manifested itself as like a very unique uh, voice, uh, picture to picture. Mm-hmm. And we just watched a lot of Wong Kar Wai and a lot of Darius Kanji. Uh, and we also liked the the guy who was shooting for Lynn Ramsey at the time. I think his name was Alwyn, Alwyn Kuchler. Kuchler, yeah. Yeah. And we watched a lot of his stuff, too, because I, he, he, I think he may have also shot uh, Monsoon Wedding, which we were obsessed with at the time. And it's funny, because Damien also loves Monsoon Wedding. Oh, when yeah. we were on the director's roundtable, it was basically me and Damien cornering uh, Mir Nair to talk about <laughs> Monsoon Wedding. It was amazing. Um, but, you know, we just, at the film school that we went to, there were a lot of really great filmmakers there at the time. You know, this guy, Wes Ball, um, was there at the same time that we were. And, and he was watching, like, a lot of uh, Spielberg and things like that, and James Cameron and things like that. And there's, that's, there's, that's a certain way of approaching uh, the, the visual voice of a piece. But then there was just so much of the world outside that. Mm-hmm. And James and I, uh, we were just these two guys who we would just go off and nerd out watching, you know, as much off the beaten path as we possibly could. And eventually when we started making short films, there's this film I have pinned uh, to my Twitter profile, it was the first uh, short that we made in film school called My Josephine. Um, it just all those influences manifested themselves. Uh, like I said, medicine had a, a more overt kind of thing with the saturation of the color, mm-hmm. pulling the colors down, bringing them up in other areas. Uh, and Moonlight has, you know, certainly with how you handled, handled the uh, color with the colorist side of things, has something going on as well. But it's not as overt. Like I said, mm-hmm. did you ever think about doing something as? Bold is what you did in Medicine for Melancholy with the look. No, we, we I mean, to, to us, the, the boldness was going to be uh, allowing Moonlight to be as saturated, um, as uh, picturesque, I would say, uh, as beautiful an image as it is. Because, you know, when you, if I tell you I'm making a social realist drama, you know, you assume, you know, a very naturalistic, you know, dispassionate camera, you know, these sort of like, not necessarily flat, but, you know, a, a more gray, gray toned film, something like the Darden Brothers. Um, uh, whereas, you know, we thought we would lean into the beauty um, of Miami. It's interesting with, with, with medicine, though, because, you know, a lot of these things, they, they don't happen by happenstance. You know, what, what I love about medicine is people always make the commentary of how desaturated it is. But if you watch the raw footage, it's super saturated, mm. like hyper saturated, because we knew when we pulled out the color, we wanted to keep the lushness of the skin tones. Mm-hmm. Um, and so all the footage is very, very 
very red and very, very orange um, uh, at the image capture stage. And then we worked our way back uh, from that. So, you know, we try to, you know, I, I say this about Moonlight, but I think it also applies to medicine. The consciousness of the character kind of dictates um, the tone, the visual tone of the piece. And uh, Sharon is surrounded uh, by beauty. And I think inside there is this inner sort of uh, torment, you know, uh, about the beauty he's surrounded by and yet how tough his life is. And so those things make their way into the imagery. But to go down to like 94%, because uh, that would have been, I mean, you know, <laughs> about medicine is desaturated 94%. We'd have to hypersaturate this. Mm-hmm. Man, it would have been. And then we are talking <laughs> about Christopher Doyle, Warren Carlyle in 1995. You're getting there. You'll probably get there at some point with that kind of a look, I mean. Yeah. Uh, the uh, environment is is something I want to talk about. Uh, medicine is very uh, informed by its environment. San Francisco, the characters dealing with uh, the various sociopolitical elements and the uh, gentrification is a big topic there as well. And then uh, with Moonlight, Miami, Liberty City, uh, basically the environment's very much speak to character in these films uh how important is that for you is that something more specifically is that is that something that is comes naturally to you when you're writing or is it something that maybe through the process of writing you come to a stage where it's like okay now i want to implement this these ideas of how environment is impacting the story no no i think it comes part and parcel with my approach to the work uh, up to this point especially with those two films um you know they're both very very rooted in place and you know you've read Terrell's piece even even at at Terrell's stage of it yeah. you know the environment was was a very large uh aspect i mean it's kind of cliche to say but the environment was uh, a character you know uh some element of it has to do with the way we're making these films you know these are not robust budgets you know it, it's it would be more expensive for me to try to subdue the environment mm-hmm. than to uh make the environment an active element um of the film uh, and, and in this case you know it was uh intellectually dramatically um uh, a point of reference to have the environment be an active uh element uh, of the tone and the atmosphere of the movie for example you know, we could have gone to New Orleans or Atlanta to make this film because Florida doesn't have any tax incentives. Mm-hmm. And, and because of the budget of this film, you know, we really could have used those tax incentives. But the offset to me, you know, the the environment, as you say, of Miami was so crucial uh, to me, the, to, to the inner life of the characters, um, that it was worth uh, taking the hit, you know, and not moving to a, a different locale to, to set the film. Yeah. And aesthetically, it did. Provides so much. I mean, beyond just thematically, how it impacts you, you know, as a, as a filmmaker, you're often uh, imagining things. You, you know, you imagine how a location is going to look. You know, how how the light is going to be. Whereas in this case, because I've grown up in this place, you know, I can imagine it, but it's exactly as I imagined it when I get to set. You know, when I point the camera in that direction, I'm seeing exactly what I saw. Right. Um, in my head, you know, the projects are still pastel. You know. Right. And when we turn that camera on, it's going to be gorgeous pastel colors surrounding this and some some scenes this horrific um, encounter between these characters right yeah uh regarding the oscars congratulations the movie has i think eight nominations man it's and it's this is wild this is this is me james adela joy nat went to film school together we are all Academy Award nominees. <laughs> like it's, it's fun. I'm I'm pretty chill about the stuff, but I did I teared up, man, because it's bet. like, um, you know, not that it was a dream of mine, 
But you know, you were in film school, and you you know, you guys sit around, you watch the Oscars, and now there are going to be people at my film school watching the Oscars, and they're going to see us, mm-hmm. you know, sitting in the auditorium. It's it's unbelievable. Yeah, definitely. That's part of the reason I'm always pulling for Jeff Nichols. We went to film school together. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. Amazing else. guy. But uh, you know, regarding that, you've made history in that uh, this is the first film from a, a black writer director that's nominated for best picture, best director, best screenplay. Uh, what I want to know is, uh, what's like the overriding emotion for you? Is it, is it pride that you're the guy that that broke this ceiling? That, that this is the film that did this, or is there more of a sense of longing that I don't have to bring that up as a statistic? That uh, it's it's yeah, it's bittersweet. I mean, uh, there's there's so many different angles on it. You know, one, you know, I'm getting messages from people back home in Miami now, and I'm not even talking Florida State, my film school. People back home, mm-hmm. living in the world you see depicted in this film, um, and I think when you watch this movie, you don't assume that Chiron is going to grow up and be nominated, you know, for 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 two Academy Awards or eight Academy Awards right. uh, for the film, um, and I think people look at me and they, they see that happen, and their idea of what they are capable of is shifting you know um uh, and i think that's that's amazing you know what's possible um is shifting uh, and it's it's a beautiful thing um but of course it's bittersweet because you know it's 2017 um there should be no room for first um anymore mm-hmm. and i think of someone you know like spike you know who wrote and directed malcolm x which is an amazing film um or or do the right thing or so many so many other pieces of his work um, and so it's bittersweet that there are any first uh, for, for me or anyone else uh, to accomplish. Um, yeah, I don't, I don't. It's where even talking about it, man. It's such a mixed thing. Yeah. You know, I do a lot of Q and A's, and I can give very succinct answers. But that's one of the ones that you know, as this is happening, you know, I'm still trying to reconcile, you know, what it means and how I feel about it. Yeah, definitely. And, and you know, as you say, it's a far overdue milestone, but. Uh Congrats on being the one to, to hit that mark. You know Thank I mean? you, bro. And, and, and you know what? And to, and to fold it all the way back, you know, you mentioned eight nominations, you know, and I'm glad they're spread as wide across the piece as mm-hmm. they are. You know, I think you remove any one element um, of this puzzle and the film is not the same. And so even though it's a milestone that theoretically, you know, I'm, I've accomplished or I'm the recipient of, I think those eight nominations show that uh, the village that created Moonlight yeah. um, has, has, has achieved that milestone. Definitely. And then I, I hate to close out by leaning in on politics, but we're entering uh. Black History Month. <laughs> and I have to ask if you if you saw President Trump's comments about uh, Black History Month. I did not. You did not. I did not. They were very hand fisted. You know, I, I, I saw I saw one clip on Twitter about Frederick Douglass and I thought it was a joke. I thought no, I thought was, someone had like dubbed that I, was real, I, I did man. not think it was real. That was real. I did not think it was real. What, what does that make you think when the leader of the free world is, is th- that that's his capacity for, for empathizing and understanding what this means? <sighs> Heavy question to close with. I'm so sorry. I feel I so bad. See, th- thankfully, this is radio because uh, <laughs> he, he could see my face when he started to ask the question. Um, I mean, look, these are I think we're all, you know, I, I just watched I Am Not Your Negro uh, mm-hmm. again uh, the other day. And I think. It's amazing how many things uh, Mr. Baldwin says in that piece that are relevant to the present moment that we're currently living in. Um, and rather than, than giving an opinion on the current president, um, it just reminds me, like the movie that's pinned at the top of my Twitter profile, I've just got to keep making work um, that addresses and reflects the world that we live in and the country um, that we want to continue to live in. 
Definitely. Well, I think you'll have plenty of doors open to you now, thankfully. What do you want to do? Remigration, too. Electric boogaloo, (laughs) bro. What Um, do you want to do, though? Seriously, like, uh, do you want to – because you've written a a variety of things. I mean, I I was reading about the thing that you wrote, like a diehard kind of thing. Like, diehard on a bridge is what you called it. But, Mm -hmm. like – what what kind of movies are you interested in making going forward? You know, I'm a I'm I'm a, I'm a person who just loves cinema. You know, uh, for example, you know, I, my my love of Deepwater Horizon. Mm-hmm. I would love to make that film, mm-hmm. as as evidenced by how much I tweet about it. <laughs> um, th- there are many different things um, that I, that I'm curious about that I have an appetite for, um, and I think that the the biggest blessing of this experience has been a lot of those things are open to me now. Um, it always starts with the character, though. Always starts with the character. And as you said, with the place. I think with those two elements, there's some moments where I feel like I can make anything, um, as evidenced by the two pieces I'm working on now, which are totally different. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, Basically, a biopic about a female boxer from Flint, Michigan, mm-hmm. You know, and Colson Whitehead's The Underground Railroad. You know, Couldn't be more different. Yeah. Um, and yet, I think they both feature amazing characters rooted to place. Yeah, man. Well, good luck with both of those. Good luck going forward. And congrats again, and thanks for coming on the show. I really appreciate it. Thank you very much, bro. <laughs> Thanks for listening, everyone. Remember to subscribe and check back next week when I'll be talking to Arrival director Denis Villeneuve. You've been listening to Playback at Variety.